Okay. There we go. So today, our topic is the topic of baptism. And if you haven't received one of the handouts, please uh, look for one around you somewhere. We are going, to, I have a handout that I've just given to each of you uh, that we're going to use as our guide for our lesson today. And um, as it, uh, you see on the title there, it's the, we're discussing the development of Christian baptism. What I think is most helpful for us to understand baptism in general is understand how baptism developed historically. You know, baptism didn't just come out of the blue. It wasn't just one day Jesus come, came to the disciples and said, okay, why don't you start baptizing people? Um, it didn't just come out of the blue. There's a historical context in which uh, baptism developed. And I think it's very instructive to us to understand what that historical context is so that we understand the nature of, of baptism. And it will help us, I believe, ultimately, to... Um, have a right view of baptism. There are many varying views of baptism, but this will hopefully give us a, a biblical perspective on how we're to view it. So just be aware of the fact that baptism is not something that came from nowhere. It actually started with John the Baptist. And so we're gonna look at John's Baptist, John the Baptist's baptisms, and that's our, our first heading here actually, is John's baptism of repentance. As you know, he came uh, pro proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And so we're going to look at what the nature is of the baptism that John performed. We'll be looking at some passages of scripture, and if you want to, you can turn to the Luke passage that I have written down there, Luke chapter 3 and uh, verse 4 to begin with. <clears throat> but what I believe we're going to see from John's baptism uh, and by the way, let me make this, this note. John's baptism is not Christian baptism, but it does, it is the forerunner to Christian baptism. You know, what was John the Baptist's mission? What was his role? He came to prepare the way of the Lord, right? It's one of preparation. And so he's, he's preparing the way of the Lord. Well, I believe that that is true not only in what he preached, you know, he came preaching, declaring the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's the message that Jesus preached when he came on the scene as well. But I think that's true not only with regard to that particular aspect of John the Baptist's ministry, but it's also true with regard to the aspect of his ministry that included the baptism, uh, his baptism. So his baptism is, in a sense, a preparation for Christian baptism. And so we're going to see, I believe, as we look at this, that John's baptism of repentance denotes the fact of purification or forgiveness of sins granted to the repentant. If you want to put in, fill in the blank there, the word is fact. Let's look then at Luke um, chapter 3 and verse 4. And I may uh, have some of you... Uh, read as we go along but for right now Luke chapter 3 verse 4 says this as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet the voice of the one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord make his paths straight so again this is just highlighting what I've already said and that is that 
John the Baptist's ministry is one of making ready or preparing the ways of the Lord, and it harkens back to the prophecy of this. And actually, this is a quotation from uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, in which John the Baptist's ministry was prophesied, and that that's what he would be doing. And so um, his, his ministry then, John's ministry, is one of preparation. But something that characterized his ministry was that of what I'm going to call spiritualization. So this is point two in your first column there. Look at verses three, and by the way, let me make this quick comment. <clears throat> this, uh, this overall outline that I'm using and this, this general perspective is, uh, I was very much helped by a THM thesis written by Greg Huffstetler at Westminster Theological Seminary East uh, many, many years ago. Um, the, uh, the comment, by the way, Aaron would be interested to know this, the comment of uh, Vern Poitras in reviewing Greg's uh, THM thesis, one of his comments was simply this, you hit the ball into the Pado-Baptist court. And so um, I think what he did in that, in that thesis was, was uh, excellent work. He says it was public, he even, you know, Dr. Poitras admitted it was publishable as it stood, although he had his recommendations of how it could be improved. Anyway, that's just here nor there, I guess. But Luke chapter 3, verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that's what he's preaching. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. This is what God planned for John the Baptist to do, to prepare the way for Christ, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So there's a spiritual, a, a spiritual dimension to this. It is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This, this is not something that is dependent upon one's parentage but it is something that is dependent upon one's repentance. Look at verse eight. He says, therefore bring forth, and he's talking to those who are coming to be baptized. <coughs> and um, he, he uh, warns us, them with some various stern words, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. <coughs> therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the ax is already laid at the root of the trees, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So there's a, there is a, a, this spiritual dimension here um, of bringing forth fruit, repenting and bringing forth fruit. Repentance resulting in the forgiveness of sins. There is thirdly a, what I'm going to call a universalization. And what do I mean by that? Do I mean that all men without exception or saved. No, that's not what John's ministry was. <clears throat> but rather, it is what we, have off, we typically understand, and that is that he came baptizing 
but there's a new, uh, kind of a new emphasis here on all the nations. All the nations. Now we, we see that already in verse 8. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So you see there already that there's a kind of, he's sort of universalizing this in a, in a sense. If you repent, if you bring forth fruit for repentance, <clears throat> um, you qualify. Now, he is, he's talking to Jewish people here for sure. And uh, we're not, at this point, he doesn't, um, this is kind of the bud, it hasn't blossomed yet. But nevertheless, notice his emphasis here that he's, he's moving away from their looking to their physical parental heritage. Don't say you have Abraham for your father. Don't trust in being a Jew. Now that was always the case, that they should never trust just simply in being a Jew. Even the Old Testament said, you know, circumcise your hearts. But nevertheless, that is a, a key element to John the Baptist's message. He said, God's able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. But no, but when, when John the Baptist is, is seeing Jesus, look with me at John chapter 1 and verse 29. And the, Dave, my brother Dave, when you get John chapter 1, 29, would you read that? The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so here's John the Baptist, and he's, uh, he, he's declaring to the people, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not of the Jewish nation, but of the world. We understand by world there that he's including the Gentiles. So there's an emphasis here from John the Baptist that we're, don't trust your heritage. This Lamb is the Lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. And in fact, that's something that was later on emphasized. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. Hope you keep your fingers numbered because we're looking at a lot of different passages here. <clears throat> and this is where Jesus is speaking. And notice what Jesus says. Let's go back to verse uh, 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. By the way, I'm reading from the NASB. It's just the Bible I've always studied from for years. So you're, if you have an ESV, it may read slightly differently. But notice what he says in verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is you, the Jewish nation, you, you Jews, you Israelites. And what's going to happen? It's going to be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. There's a transition that is taking place here. And what we could call in the fourth area there, the fourth item on the list, a reorganization. Whereas the people of God are now being reorganized around spiritual lines. They're being reorganized so that no longer <clears throat> is the Jewish nation the kind of the center 
of the message and of the location where the Lord dwells, but rather it's being taken away from that nation and given to another nation. What is the nature of that nation? Is it a physical nation? Is he talking about we're taken away from, from the Israelites and given to the Philistines? No. He's talking about taking it away from a physical nation and giving it to a spiritual nation. And that spiritual nation is going to be composed of all nations, some from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, it was true already that other nations could be incorporated into the people of God. Think of Rahab, um, think of Ruth. But what happened with those people? Those people were incorporated into the Israelite nation. And there was, there's provision made for Gentiles to become, as it were, Jews. They could, they could come into the Jewish nation. Jewish man could be circumcised and he could go through the rites and he could become a, an, an Israelite. But um, this is a move in the other direction where it's being taken away from the Jewish nation and it's being given to a nation producing the fruits, a nation of repentant fruit producers. That's what John the Baptist, that's what's incorporated into John the Baptist's baptism, I believe. And so, <clears throat> John's baptism as a forerunner to and in preparation for Christian baptism tells us that <laughs> baptism is something that denotes the fact of the purification from sin and the forgiveness that is granted to those who are repentant. That's the meaning of Christian baptism. Well, it, it will be of John's baptism will be and will be incorporated into Christian baptism. Any any questions about just the essence of John's baptism here before we move on to the second area? Okay. All right. Well, let's look at the second column in your handout, and that is John's baptism of Jesus. John's baptism of Jesus. Now, what is a question that might arise very naturally and did in fact arise in John the Baptist's mind when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist? What was his baptism? Repentance. Baptism of repentance, right? So, yeah, so Jesus didn't need to repent, did he? And so John says, why are you coming to me for baptism? I, I need to be baptized by you. So there's a, there's a, John senses there's a kind of incongruity here. There's something that doesn't seem to fit. Well, John's baptism of Jesus denotes what I'm going to call the objective means by which the fact of purification and forgiveness is accomplished. Why do I say, and that word objective is important because I'm distinguishing that from any subjective necessity in Jesus himself to be baptized. In other words, he had not personally sinned. 
Therefore, there was no need for him to repent, no need for him to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. So there was no subjective necessity, but there was an objective reason for his being baptized. That is, an, in a sense, a reason outside of Jesus himself in a certain sense. Look with me at Matthew chapter 3. And um, Donna, would you read? Verses 13 to 15. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Okay. My translation says in verse 15, Jesus says, permit it at this time. Or, how, how, did, how was the ESV again? Consented. Then he consented. The first part of verse 15. Uh, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Let it be so now. Okay. So, permit it at this time. Let it be so now. Now, that little phrase, when you say something like, well, well, permit, permit it, or let it be so, Jesus is recognizing that, yes, there is no subjective necessity within me that I be baptized, but permit it anyway. Let it be so anyway. Why? Now, at this time, there's a particular, we're at a particular point in the history of redemption when this is going to be appropriate. And what is it that's, that is happening here. He says, well, what's going to make it appropriate? He says, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is how the righteousness that I have come to bring is going to be fulfilled. How is it? What's happening here? What is Jesus doing? Tell me. He's identifying with us. He's standing in the place of sinners. Just like he did on the cross. Was there any necessity for Jesus to die subjectively? Had he ever sinned? Did he, were the wages of sin death for him in the same way that it is for, no. There was no subjective necessity for Jesus to die. There was no subjective necessity for Jesus to be baptized. But he was taking our place. And so what I believe is happening here in Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist is that he is saying, my people are going to be united to me in such a way that I am identifying with them. I am taking their place. I am their substitute. I am in, you want some theological terminology? Solidaric identification with my people. Union with Christ or solidaric identification with Christ is what is happening here, I believe, when Jesus is being baptized. He is our head. This is kind of Roman, another perspective from Romans 5. So Jesus is 
identifying with us, and he's saying this is the means by which righteousness, the purification of sins, the forgiveness of sins is going to be accomplished. It is going to be accomplished by means of my standing in the place of sinners. And so John's baptism of Jesus denotes the objective means by which the fact of purification and forgiveness is going to be accomplished. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> but you know, that's a, that is an amazing thing. You think about this, Jesus has not yet died. The disciples had not yet understood all that was going to be happening with regard to redemption. And here Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, is already telling us, I am going to so identify with sinners that at this point, I'm going to be baptized, in a sense, as one of them, and one day I will die as one of them. It, 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 was, it was incorporated into his ministry from the very beginning. Okay, any questions about column number two? All right, <clears throat> column number three. Now, this is a kind of little, uh, often not discussed. Um, There's little discussion that I have observed with regard to the Judean baptisms by Jesus' disciples. The Judean baptism by by Jesus' disciples. You know, not only did John the Baptist baptize, but... During that same time, Jesus had his disciples baptizing. What is, what's going on there? Why did that happen? It wasn't forever. It was temporary. But why, why did that occur? Look with me at uh, John chapter 3. Turn with me to John chapter 3. And um, we can begin reading at verse uh, 22. Uh, Let's see, Jason, would you mind reading? Just start reading down from verse 22 and then I may stop you as we go along. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing it Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Okay, just a quick interruption. So notice a couple things. Uh, Number one, notice that um, John is in this area baptizing, and Jesus goes into the same area, and he begins baptizing in that same area. I think that what's happening here is he's kind of linking himself with John in John's baptisms. He was baptized by John and he begins to do kind of the same thing in the same area. 
So he's identifying with John. Okay, keep going. For John had not yet been in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, I'm going to stop there. What I believe is happening here then is what John is saying, uh, what John himself says, that John is starting to decrease and Jesus is starting to increase. Word had gotten out that Jesus was baptizing, but he's baptizing even more disciples than John. There was another passage that says that. He identifies with John. His disciples, and it's actually his disciples who are baptizing under his direction. If you, I think it's down, uh, yeah, verse, if you go, jump down to chapter 4, it says, When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So Jesus has his disciples baptizing. He's baptizing more than John. <clears throat> he identifies with John, but in a sense, he supersedes John. And John acknowledges, hey, I'm just the bridegroom. I'm not the groom. I must decrease. He must increase. He's baptizing more than me. That's great, because that's what I'm here for. I'm here to see that he increase and that I decrease. And so what I believe then is happening here is that Jesus unlike John, doesn't actually physically perform the baptisms. John physically did the baptisms. Jesus doesn't. He instead directs his agents, his disciples, to do the baptism. And so the Judean baptisms by Jesus' disciples establishes the agents of baptism. Who's going to be doing the baptizing? He's going to have his disciples, his agents. And, that's going to, and that was something that was going to continue on through centuries, till today. Not so with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was on the scene temporarily. And there, but Jesus links himself with, um, with John the Baptist. Jesus' baptisms in Judea refocuses from John to Jesus. And um, <clears throat> Jesus' temporary command, if you want to fill in the blanks there, Jesus' temporary command to baptize before his death is one that I believe establishes what we could call the, the mediator, the ministers, the agents of baptism. Who's going to be doing it? All right, so that's the Judean baptisms by Jesus. Any questions about third column? 
What was the second uh, point that the disciples baptizing under the authority? Um, disciples baptizing under the directions, or you yeah, could say authority if you want to, under the directions of Christ. <coughs> So what have we seen thus far? We've seen that John the Baptist comes on the scene. What's incorporated into this practice of baptism? It's a baptism of, of the repentant for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism that uh, Jesus undergoes identifying with us in solidaric union with us. And it's a baptism that Jesus does, but he does it by means of the agency of his disciples. So we have, <clears throat> we have the the fact of purification, the objective means of purification, and the agencies of the baptism, the agents of the baptism for purification, indicating purification. And that leads us up to, and all of this, if you want to look at the bottom of your sheet where I have it all bracketed, the first three columns bracketed, all of this I would call preparation for Christian baptism. <clears throat> that is all in preparation for Christian, it's not yet Christian baptism. <laughs> but it's in preparation for it. This is the context out of which Christian baptism comes. Hey, Brother Larry. Just yes. A question. I mean, in their day and time as a Jewish people, they always associated forgiveness of sins with the shedding of blood. Hmm. So this would be something completely out of the ordinary. Hmm. We don't know of a prophet that I'm aware of who called folks to this, nor do we know. So, I mean, you know, this, I mean, here comes this guy in the wilderness preaching, and you know, he's dressed unusual, and he's eating unusual things, not like everyday folks. He's preaching and then calling them to baptism. Can you imagine? I mean, this is different. But so we see a move of God, something like a, you know, a God-sent revival, kind of thing, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. Unique. I mean, this would be an abnormal in their in their day. Yeah, but, yeah. But Pastor Keith, you know, prior to uh, killing of an animal, there was a purification. Right. The priest had washing. to wash it, but not the people, not, it, not no, a baptism thing like that. this. Yeah. So all but there, there was an aspect of, of water in there with it. Water washing thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I think part of your point is is that this was really. <laughs> If you think about the whole history of Israel, all of a sudden, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and suddenly comes on the scene this prophet, and he's doing this thing that never been done before. He's baptizing people. What, what's this? You know, what's going on here? And, um, and all of that is in preparation for Jesus to come. Okay, let's look at Christian baptism commanded by Christ himself. Okay, here is Christian baptism in its, being, in its establishment. And uh, we would say that Christian baptism commanded by Christ establishes what I would call, the, we could call this the mandate or the norm, the norm for baptism. And when Jesus commands um, baptism, and we're going to look at this in Matthew 28, you can turn there if you want. Uh, when Jesus gives the command to his disciples to, to baptize, as I indicated at the very beginning, that doesn't come just out of the blue. It has, 
a historical context. And the historical context is John the Baptist coming on the scene in preparation for, for Jesus. So let's then look at how Christian baptism, which is commanded by Christ, establishes the norm for baptism. And I believe we, it includes all that was already incorporated into the previous baptisms by John the Baptist and, John, and, and Jesus' disciples. That is, it incorporates the fact, the objective means, and the agents that we've already discussed. But let's look then again at Matthew chapter 28. And verse 18. Chris, would you read uh, 18 and uh, 18 through 20, please? And Jesus came up and spoke to him, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so Jesus has died, he's been raised from the dead, and he's about to send him up, up to his Father in heaven, and he leaves the, the disciples with this um, departing command. Um, he says, go therefore and make disciples. By the way, actually in the, in the Greek construction, there's really only one imperative in this passage literally be going therefore there's really only one imperative do you know what the imperative is it's the make disciples that's the part that's the imperative <clears throat> and I believe the other part has to do with how it's going to be done so go therefore make disciples of all nations how baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Who, according to, to Jesus here, is to be baptized? Okay. Make disciples, baptizing them. Yeah, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You make them a disciple first. How, how is a disciple made? Converting. You're converted. How do you get converted? Regeneration. Okay, Holy Spirit re regenerates you, and then what do you do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. <laughs> okay. So we got, we have what was incorporated the very beginning, repentance and faith. That was incorporated into John's baptism. Repentance is incorporated into Christian baptism. How, how can it be that we can have our sins forgiven? <clears throat> how is that ever possible? It's possible because somebody took our place. Somebody stood in our place. Somebody objectively stood in my place. Christ. That's how I can become a disciple. And who is to do the baptizing? Is it Jesus baptizing throughout the ages? Does he come back to the earth? No. He has his disciples do it. I think all 
of the elements that we have seen in the preparation for baptism are incorporated into Christian baptism by Jesus here. We see the fact of purification, we see the means of purification, and we also see the agents who perform the baptism. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And also we see the all nations, by the way, that also is that um, spiritualization and that broadening out, that reorganization, taking away from the nation of Israel and giving it to a spiritual nation. That's incorporated into this as well. And so <clears throat> there I think then we see the norm for Christian baptism, and this is Jesus' permanent command to baptize after his death. There was a temporary command earlier, but this is Jesus' permanent command to baptize. And it incorporates all that was included in the, um, the previous baptisms. Any question about the fourth column? Dave. I'm thinking out loud here, uh, but you know this transition from John's baptism of repentance to gospel baptism, when Jesus gives the command in Matthew 8:28. Jesus was on the earth for three years. Uh, he was baptized, or his disciples were baptizing initially. But <clears throat> do you think there was baptisms of repentance continuing to go on throughout the time Jesus was on earth before this command? I'm trying to think of any gospel. Uh, there's really nothing in the gospels that signifies that people continue to get baptized for a baptism of repentance. Maybe there, there is. I'm, I'm trying to think of something, but I'm thinking of the transition. Was it gradual? Was it like, okay, all this is baptism of repentance until boom, Matthew 28, now it's a baptism of uh, faith in Christ and Christian baptism. Yeah, it, it, well, if you're, if you're asking, did the disciples themselves continue after Judea? No, John's continue? disciples, once they came to Jesus. Yeah. Well, John the Baptist was beheaded at a particular yeah, right. point, and so that kind of quit. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, to my knowledge, after the Judean baptisms, it, there's no, there's there's no, no really word of... Yeah, so I don't, the scriptures don't say... Yeah, your nay on that, but there's nothing that indicates that they continued that that I know of. Aaron, do you know anything? Amy just said in Acts you've got people still being baptized. You haven't heard of John's baptism. Yeah, yeah, there that's the the transitional saints, and actually that's one of the passages we'll look at a little bit later uh, if we have time. But um yeah, there were transitional saints. There were those who had been baptized. Now, we don't know when that occurred. They were baptized with John's baptism, which makes me think they were baptized by John. So after John was beheaded. Okay, last column. Christian baptism performed by the church. And here we see what I'm going to call the, the, the maintenance or... <clears throat> um, the observance, the ongoing observance, the continuation of or the practice of Christian baptism. So uh, Christian baptism performed by the church establishes the practice of baptism as we know it and practice it today. The disciples baptize the repentant, the believing. They baptize them in the name of, of Jesus Christ. Sometimes there's a shortened formula but the full formula is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
and it denotes their forgiveness of their sins through union with Christ. And we see that happening in P when Peter begins um, early in Acts, and you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter begins preaching after the resurrection and after Pentecost. And we've already talked about the significance of Pentecost and what a, what a significant event that was. <coughs> Excuse me. The verse 38, um, the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost in verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent, speaking to those who had uh, brethren and, and the Jews who had gathered together, um, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of, well, repent. Does that sound kind of like what John the Baptist preached? Yeah. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of sins is going to happen through Jesus Christ. Does that sound kind of like solidaric union with him? <clears throat> yeah, I think so. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And by the way, that little phrase, as many as the Lord our God shall call, qualifies the other previous phrases, the promises for you, you Jews, <clears throat> and your children, and for all who are far off, which I believe is Gentiles, every single Jew, every single Jew's child, every single Gentile, no. All three of those groups are qualified by this last phrase, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So all you Jews who are called by God to himself, and we've talked about calling too already, um, you, the promise is for you. All of your children who are called by God, the promise is for them. All the Gentiles who are called by God, the promises for them. And so, at the beginning of Peter's ministry, he's telling them to be baptized in the name of Christ. He incorporates what we've already seen in Christian baptism. So the disciples baptize repentance, they're repentant, um, that is, the, the, the believers, the repentant believers in the name of Jesus Christ. So baptism denotes forgiveness through union with Christ, and this is the observance. All right, so that's, uh, that is then, I believe, what I would call, if you're looking at the very bottom of your handout, the establishment of Christian baptism. The establishment of Christian baptism. And all of that together is what I'm calling the development of Christian baptism. How... Christian baptism developed in the history of redemption. And when we see its development, I think it, it does much to inform us of the nature of baptism and how we are to view it. And also gives us insight into the next topic of my discussion this morning, and that is the subjects of baptism. The subjects of baptism. Any questions about what I've covered thus far? All right, <clears throat> well, 
if you take the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London or the Baptist Confession of Faith and read the sections on baptism, you will find that they differ. In many of the sections, in many of the chapters, they don't. They're virtually identical. But in the subject of baptism, there is a difference. And that is um, the Westminster Confession. And by the way, um, I went to Westminster Theological Seminary. Aaron went to Westminster Theological Seminary West. We both went there, rubbed shoulders, were taught by Pedo-Baptists for years, and um, came out. Baptists. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, what I've already said has a lot to do with answering that question. But what about, what about it? There are good brothers who, who I love. One of my favorite authors is John Murray, but he's a Pedo-Baptist. Um, there are just, they're good, R.C. Sproul. There are good Pedo-Baptist brothers who differ with us on this particular subject. The Westminster Confession of Faith will tell us that infants are the proper subject of baptism. And in some of the Reformed literature that you will read, there, there are some who, who would say, and let me, let me um, quote this, um, the baptism of infants is the command of God himself. I don't know about you, how many of you here have read through the entire Bible? How many of you have read through the entire Bible multiple times? And some of us, I mean, there's, I don't know, I've read through some portions of the Bible hundreds of times, really. I've never read that command. And yet, there are those who are bold enough to stand up and say, the baptism of infants is the command of God himself, and if you don't do it, you are depriving your children, and you're disobeying God. Is that true? What does the Bible teach us? Are we, in fact, being disobedient to God's command if we do not baptize infants? Well, um, we don't have a whole lot of time to deal with it, so I'm going to skip looking at all the instances of baptism in the book of Acts. But you, you'll have to just trust me on this. <clears throat> if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Acts chapter 8, verse 13, Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 38, 9, 17 to 18, 18, verse 8, 19, um, verses 1 through 7. If you look at all these different passages of Scripture, <clears throat> you will never find a deviation from a particular pattern in the New Testament baptisms. Do you know what that pattern is? <clears throat> Baptism, the pattern is this. And I'm just using a single summary term, faith, repentance, conversion, then baptism. <clears throat> you don't see it the other way around. There's no instance of that in the scripture. That's consistently the, 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 pa the, the pattern of scripture. Now what about 
Um, what about those passages of scripture that are called household baptisms where some would say, well, the whole household is baptized and therefore there were children there. And uh, we can assume that. <clears throat> um, let's look at a couple of those real quickly. Um, go to Acts chapter, uh, chapter 18. <clears throat> Excuse me. Acts chapter 18 and uh, verse 8. Make up the right passage. Yeah, okay. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, some Pado-Baptists will point to this and say, oh, look, see, uh, Crispus' household was baptized. <clears throat> well, let's look at this passage a little more carefully. In the first place, it says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. But did all of his household didn't believe? Did that include infants? Do we have infant believers? And many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and being baptized. Now, actually, technically speaking, it didn't even say Crispus was baptized. It says that many of the Corinthians were. But let's grant that probably Crispus was baptized. But if his household includes believer, if his household includes infants, and you're going to say that infants were baptized, you're going to also have to say that they believed in the Lord, because that's what it says. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Does, and, and then the other point that I would bring out here is simply this. Um, it doesn't say there were infants in his household. You have to assume that. You have to import that into the text. Look at chapter 19 of Acts. Uh, this is the, the passage that we were referring to a little bit earlier. Um, and it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, uh, came to Ephesus and bound some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So <clears throat> um, here all we see is those who had been disciples of John, who were, as it were, Old Testament saints, hadn't received the full message of the gospel, but they were true Old Testament believers, been baptized by John's baptism, and now they're hearing about Christ, and they believe the message as a true believer would do. And so then they, in turn, are baptized with Christian baptism, which indicates, by the way, that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. It's a, poor, it's a forerunner of it. But they then are baptized. Well, there's nothing here about infants being baptized. What about... Um, Acts chapter 10, verses 23. 
Here's Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius was a Gentile. Peter was told to go to him. He, uh, he goes to Cornelius, and um, Cornelius says, tell me what message is that you have from the Lord. And look at verse 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we can he. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they asked him to stay on a few days. Now, now Cornelius' family had joined them at this point, and so the assumption is by some, well, probably there were some infants there and they were baptized too. Well, if that's the case, then we also have to say that they, they fall under these other, uh, these other qualifications. That is, they heard and listened to the message. They believed. They spoke with tongues. Did that happen with regard to infants? Well, you have to make a pretty, pretty big assumption. We could go on, we could look at Lydia, the same thing with regard to Lydia and her, her baptism. There's no, no mention of infants in her household. We, she was a, a businesswoman, unlikely that she was nursing an infant. Um, we don't even know that she had a husband, let alone any infants. The Philippian jailer, same situation, says that all in his house, the, the word of God was spoken to them. Same thing with regard to Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. And the theological, and I don't have time to go through this, but there is a flaw in the theological basis for infant baptism, but we're going to have to wrap it up. If you want me to talk about that, we'll talk about it on another occasion, but our time is up. So um, <coughs> let me ask... Um, Brother Patrick, would you close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word that we can dig into it. Thank you for giving us a better understanding of what baptism is and why baptism is. Help us now as we go into worship to uh, open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.